everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Laland. Lawson. Lawson. What are you thankful for this morning? Oh, dude. So yesterday, uh, I, I've mentioned this many times on radio, but I work at the Newcastle Uni as a Bible worker, you know, reaching out to the students there. And we ran our food drive for students and uh, health professionals. Epic. And it was awesome. We just like, uh, we one of our church members is like the best cook ever, cooks the nicest fried rice like I've ever eaten. Like, honestly, it's incredible. We packaged up a bunch of fried rice and vegetable stir fry and spring rolls and vegan brownies, all vegan, by the way, and just drove around and dropped them off to people. And it was the best. Like, I like, because we've done the food drive before, like during exams and stuff, and people are like, you know, pretty appreciative and that. But this one was a little bit more low key. And instead of like just getting people to come to us on the campus, we'll drive into their houses. And just the amount of conversation that we had, the amount of people that were just interested in hanging out with us, like some people who we knew, but then other people who we'd never met before just, you know, lined up the delivery and it's like, oh, hey, do you want to hang out with us now the lockdown's finishing? They're like, yes, like you guys are so awesome. And, <laughs> that is amazing. And sending us text messages afterwards because we knew like, okay, if we're delivering food, it's got to be amazing. Like it's got to be bomb food. Yes. And that was the thing. Like this fried rice is delivering- next level. And brownies. And brown. these brownies literally were like, they're like thick and you eat them and it's just like, oh, this is amazing. So yeah, they're, they're like sending us text messages like 20 minutes after we drop it off. Like, this food is amazing. Thank you so much. So yeah, dude, I had the best time yesterday. Seriously. Well, this is, see, this is how evangelism was done in the Bible. This mm. is the Acts 2 model of evangelism. They continued daily in the apostles' doctrine yeah. and breaking of bread and prayer. And obviously, like we've got a an evangelistic series coming up, and so for us, this is like our oh, let's reach out to people and try and get them Give interested them in the Word of God. There you go, brownie ministry right there. It's powerful. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Oh, we would love it if you could send in on that number again at zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. Any of your questions of the day? Uh, we usually have a backlog of questions that we work through, but we're running dry at the moment. So if you guys have any Bible questions, please send them through, and we'll make Lyle answer them. Okay, so uh, Raphael's just texted through to say that this is a conspiracy against me this morning with this with this subversive it's new not it's not a conspiracy i will and, openly say that and, it, we're against and i Lyle. agree with Raphael. this is definitely a valid conspiracy it's theory this morning it's not a conspiracy we're just bullying you like <laughs> <laughs> like there's nothing to hide here come on man all right let's have some positive right, news. i'm going to tell you about something that you enjoy this morning Lyle. oh good oh because how much do you like invasive species i don't yeah. I thought you were going to say something about, talk about things I enjoy. I do not enjoy invasive species. Well, Let's not talk about Well, how about them. a story where they're being killed off? This is a good story. Yeah, this is a good story. No, Australia hey, should be for Australian animals. That's, that's right. And specifically, not invasive mosquitoes that, you know, fly around with Diseases. Yellow fever and Zika and all those kinds of things. They've done a clinic. Dengue fever. Dude, dengue as well. They've done a trial in Australia. They call Malaria. this a super landmark successful trial where they have gone and sterilized all these mosquitoes that are carrying diseases around. So the specific mosquito, it's called the Aedes aegypti. 
And that's this, the the Aedes aegypti mosquito is like the. It's a nasty one. It is the most viral one. It's the one that's in all those countries flying around with all those different diseases. Because um, I believe this mosquito has the ability to like. It's the one with the the highest ability to bite, bite multiple people, and pass disease from and one pass to, disease. Yes, yeah, yeah. Versus like, you know, there are some mosquitoes that like they take they bite one people, one person. It's like, oh, I'm full now. I don't need to eat again, and then they die. Yeah, and that's it. Whereas these ones like fly around, go person to person to person, um, and we have a fair few of them in Australia. It's it, thankfully like uh, the ones we have in Australia aren't too incredibly disease ridden, but still. They're an invasive species, and so they're like, okay, how do we deal with this problem? So they put they they got their own version of this mosquito, and they were trialing different bacteria and whatnot, and they found the bacteria that actually sterilized them. Um, so what, then what they did is they released 3 million of them in North Queensland, which is the perfect place to do any trials like this. They because, released 3 million mosquitoes to go out and bite people. Yeah, no, to go out and mate with other mosquitoes. And wow. to breed. Okay. And to breed, yeah. not to bite people. And this is North well, Queensland. No, no one lives in North Queensland. So, like... <laughs> well, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, there are, there are lots of parts of North Queensland yes. where people don't live. Okay. There are, there are people that live in North Queensland, but there's lots of parts where people don't live in there's North Queensland. There's lots of parts in Australia where people that's don't right. live. That's right. And so this is, in, this is in places where, you know, very sparsely populated, very outbackish. And in fact, that's not actually that many mosquitoes. Yeah. You know, in the grand scale, I think there's a very small number Three of mosquitoes. Three million is, like is tiny. But, dude, they sent this thing out. And all these different mosquitoes breeded with other mosquitoes, mm-hmm. and ultimately, like the the numbers dropped drastically when they showed up there a year later. Like they just noticed. I like um, how they breeded. They bred, <laughs> and the numbers dropped really far. Then when they rocked up there, they're like, "Oh man, there's like no mosquitoes around. What's the deal?" And so then they started actually traveling around, seeing the sites where they had released mosquitoes, looking for nests and that kind of thing. And they came up with a concrete number of about a fifty-five percent drop in these mosquitoes because they'd all just been, you know, made bred with in, each other, bred into oblivion, bred into oblivion, and gone. That's, and this is that's amazing. the best news. So a 50% drop in mosquitoes should result then in a 50% drop in disease, one would think. 100%. Or even, you know, like, you could say, like, oh... 50%. <laughs> you could say then, man, this is a conspiracy against me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, well, you could say then as well, like, as, as the number of mosquitoes increases, especially in these types of mosquitoes that have the ability to bite a number of people, then there would be, like, an exponential rate in which it would drop. Yes. And so that's what they've seen, like, here. Obviously, doing it in North Queensland, a place that is very not densely populated, they don't have numbers on, oh, this many people didn't get infected by disease because, like, these aren't these are the same type of mosquitoes, but these aren't the specific mosquitoes that are carrying around yellow fever. We don't have that in Australia. But now, like, now that they've done this research, they've come up with a concrete, um, you know, uh, a, a concrete chemical that they can use to sterilize mosquitoes, and they have a method of doing so as well. Uh, well, now they can just go, okay, well, we'll send this out in, you know, we were in Ethiopia a couple of years ago. You need to get vaccinated before you go there for yellow fever. Like, all these kind of places that have malaria and all these other diseases, like, they can they can sell this compound around the world, you know, to different uh, wildlife places in there and release these mosquitoes and and yeah, win, a whole win. bunch of places in the South Pacific that could really benefit from this. I mean, you know, Papua New Guinea is just full oh, of totally. malaria, just just saturated in malaria. Dude, you can win the war on mosquitoes. 
this is a very positive. This is a very these, well. See, these mosquitoes—they're not a feral invasive. They're a native species, aren't they? To Australia, yes. Well, these types of mosquitoes exist all over the world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to expand my my group of animals that don't need to exist to include mosquitoes. To exclude mosquitoes, feral invasive species, and mosquitoes. As mosquitoes have like one use, and that's like feeding spiders. And that's that's probably it. I I honestly probably yeah. I can't honestly see another use for mosquitoes. Maybe someone can text us in zero four nine one zero six four six six nine and what would the world look like without mosquitoes? Probably, would the world actually be a worse place without mosquitoes? Probably happier. What is their contribution? I would be happier. I Definitely. would sleep better at night. Mm-hmm. Nothing worse than sleeping at night with a mosquito in the room. Oh, oh, don't get me started. Particularly as this warmer, wet weather is coming on. Looks like we're going to have a warm, wet summer. It's going to be perfect mosquito breeding ground. Let's release a bunch of these around the Newcastle Hunter region. Let's let's just release them everywhere. Let's just let's just kill them. Get 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 rid of them. I like this. Anyways, in other news, oh, and I I wouldn't consider this good news, but. I'm just going to talk about it anyway. Uh, a mountain of waste electronics and electrical equipment discarded in 2021. The total number it will is estimated to be around 57 million tons, Oof. which is heavier than the Great Wall of China. That is just that is off the and that's pretty toxic stuff. Yep, e waste is nasty and stuff. Simultaneously, the waste is worth sixty two point five billion dollars, which is bigger than the GDP of a lot of smaller nations. Um, and they're currently looking at a reality where, like, dude, elements like gallium and arsenic, silver, iridium, um, all these kinds of things can potentially run out. In the, within the next 100 years because of the amount of e-waste we're producing. So I guess we really need to be conscious of that. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Hey, so we did say that we were going to talk about conspiracy theories this morning. Oh, yep. And uh, everybody can text in their favourite conspiracy theory. Uh, Raphael's come up with this one. Sterilised mosquitoes, what an excellent idea. Just like the vax. <laughs> it will sterilise the population of the world. Uh, talking about conspiracies. Um, of course, this is only according to Dr. Fortchi and Bill Gates. But what do they know anyhow? Okay, so this is going to be fun. Um, but the question, you know, obviously during COVID, we have had, the world has been, you know, overrun with conspiracy theories. There's been no question about that. And so the question has been revolving in my mind around and around and around what makes a person vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Now, I'm not saying that everything out there that is a theory is just a theory Mm. because there are many conspiracy theories that have actually proven to be true. But the fact is there's some pretty wild conspiracy theories going around right now, Mm -hmm. like really out there stuff, you know, they're injecting. They're not injecting you with a vaccine. You're injecting you with a computer chip and, Mm. you know, you can put a magnet over it and you can feel it and you can read it with a barcode scan and all kinds of, you know, there's some, there's some pretty crazy stuff going around. Um, so, But what is it that makes people vulnerable to that? Now, in my opinion, and I could be wrong on this, I tend to think that Christians are a little more vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Mm. It would be interesting to do a survey and to find out whether this is true or not. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes people vulnerable to conspiracy theories is a, a, a sense of distrust in the establishment. 
Mm, so what's going to create a level of distrust in the establishment and why is that level of distrust higher now than I've ever seen in my lifetime? Mm. Now, if I'm wrong on this, let me know, but just anecdotally, my opinion is that the level of distrust of the establishment, when I talk about the establishment, I'm talking about you know the scientific community, the experts that are telling us stuff, mm-hmm. is higher than it's ever been before. Now, there are a lot of things that can contribute to that, but one of the things that contributes to it in a very major way, for Christians, the thing that contributes to it is when you have the scientific community comes along or the establishment comes along and tells you that your relationship that you have with God, that you experience every day, that is your lived experience, where God is actually your best friend who intervenes in your life in a very real and practical way, is just a fairy tale. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, how can you tell me that? I'm, uh, this is this is what I experience, you know. Um, so I understand why Christians can be more vulnerable to distrusting the establishment. But what about the general population? And uh, I think one of the big things that has pushed the level of distrust during this crisis more than anything else has actually been the... Uh, ideology that has surrounded the whole trans issue. Mm. And I'm, I'm going to work through some stuff here and, to, and, and illustrate why. So um, until recently, gender dysphoria was treated as a mental illness. And because it was treated as a mental illness, uh, mental health professionals would seek to align the mind with the body mm-hmm. because the mind and body are out of align with each other, so you align the bi- mind with the body. And this was based on science and it was based on biology and it was based on what was observable. Uh, in the last few years, and it's actually only been a very, very few years, that that has changed dramatically. And it's not been a process of scientific change that has driven it. It's just been a flip. They've just flipped the switch. Mm. And that's what has unnerved everybody And now it's like, no, the mind is what is real and we will align the body with the mind. Now, that's not based on any science and it's not based on any biology. It is only based on ideology. Yes. And so when you have ideology taking over science, that's when people begin to mistrust the establishment. Mm. And so then they, they think, well, if ideology is overtaking science here, then who says it isn't overtaking science over there? Mm. It's not a big leap to make, particularly when your social media uh, uh, stream gets filled with you know, claims that that is exactly what is taking place. And so basically the, the thought now is that there's nothing wrong with the mind, that the assumption is made, uh, and that there's actually a problem with the Bible, with the body, and so no other diagnosis is allowed. And... The other thing that, that, that now heightens the heightens people's predisposition to conspiracy theories is that no dissent is allowed. Mm. So when you quash scientific investigation and you quash dissenting voices, yeah. it's kind of like if I said to you, Lawson, don't look behind you right now. What are you going to do? I'm, I'm going to trust you. Okay. Lawson's not looking behind. <laughs> but, you know, you, you play this yeah, joke yeah, on lots yeah, of people. Yeah, totally. People's head flicks around. Yeah. And as soon as you say you're not allowed to discuss this, people want to discuss it. That's right. They want to know why. Mm. And 
this is something that I believe is actually a major driving force. So you get examples like Dr. Alan Joseph- Josephson, who was the former head of child and adolescent psychology at the University of Louisville. Um, he was fired for questioning, questioning gender transition for minors and presenting the scientific facts on it. Um, of course, he's suing on the basis of um, unfair dismissal based on science and, you know, one of the... Uh, experts that expert witnesses that he's called in is Dr. James Cantor, um, who has pointed out that the American Academy of Pediatrics policy statement states that transition is the only op- option for minors. Mm. The only option. It's the only thing that you're actually allowed to diagnose and prescribe for minors in the United States right now is transition wow. for children that have gender dysphoria. And he's pointed out that not only is there no compelling evidence presented, but the recommendations are despite the evidence Mm. because all the scientific evidence is exactly the opposite. Now, as a result of this, of course, he was booted then from the uh, scientific study of sexuality uh, for the, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality for questioning gender uh, transition in minors and for demanding evidence. Mm. So, you know, he's a member of this particular society. He demanded evidence for it and they couldn't produce any, so they booted him out. Yikes. Yeah, this is some pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Now, you've got to understand because a lot of people are going to be like, oh, yeah, but these are just Christians who are pushing their Christian ideology. No, this is not Christians. These people are scientists who are pushing a scientific ideology. Yeah. Dr. James Cantor is a... Gay atheist activist. Mm. He's not a Christian pushing any kind of Christian wow. theology. He's pushing science. Yeah. Um, and, and pointing out that, you know, 80% of minors spontaneously revert to their biological sex during puberty. And so why are we trying to change it? This is, this is basically... Uh, science, and he sees it as a breakdown in the scientific process and a substitution of ideology for evidence. He says we no longer, we we we're no longer allowed to discuss the issue itself, and in this wow. case, it is the solid science that over and over again is getting silenced because it's not matching up with what makes people feel good. This is the world in which we live, and it kind of explains some of what we see taking place right now. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is Pastor Michael Worker. Michael Worker is the Religious Liberty Director for the Adventist Church in Australia. Of course, uh, Faith FM Radio is sponsored by the Adventist Church. Pastor Michael Worker, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle. Nice to catch up with you again. Michael, we love having you on the show, but unfortunately we seem to be having you on a little bit more regularly than what we would like to because religious liberty issues just sort of, they don't seem to want to go away. It is really quite interesting to see the volume of legislation coming through at the moment, particularly in the states and territories. That is really challenging. How do we respond as people of faith? That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. And also to be to be able to respond in a way that shows love and compare and compassion, which is you know central to who we are as Christians, but at the same time to uh, stand for religious liberty and freedom of people to worship according to their conscience. Uh, 
Michael, we've got some concerning legislation that has been proposed in Western Australia and particularly Victoria. I think we'll probably talk more about Victoria this morning. Um, I'm wondering as we begin, can you just give us an overview of the legislation that is uh, proposed in Victoria and what it would mean to faith-based organisations and you know, a, a broad overview of where some of the challenges and problems are? Sure. And it's really interesting, the arguments that are being used, you know, it's, it's claimed and, uh, you know, there is some evidence that this is following through on a 2018 election promised by the by the Andrews government. Um, but it's following on the back of a failed attempt to pass similar but, but um, less, less invasive legislation in 2016 and uh, previous attempts before that as well. And effectively what it's saying is that faith-based organisations, whether it's schools, whether it's campgrounds, whether it's administrative offices, um, can, can only discriminate in their employment um, on the basis of faith and activity, a belief and activity. Now, when they say belief and activity, that means really the activity that goes on within uh, a worship service, for example, participating in the Lord's Supper, foot washing, um, you know, um, taking the bread and the grape juice. This is what they mean by activity. So, so basically what the legislation is proposing is that as long as I believe something, I don't have to live it. <laughs> and uh, I can't discriminate on against somebody uh, as an employer if they don't live up to what they say that they believe. That's really the heart of it. Wow, that's pretty massive. When you, yeah, okay, that's a that's a huge thing. So, so let me help help me just to wrap my head around this for a moment. Let's say that we have, say, a teacher in one of our schools, a, a Christian school, a faith based school. Um, but mm-hmm. there's, there's a teacher in a faith based school who is modelling to their students a completely unchristian lifestyle and practice, you know, in their conduct, in the way they behave, in how they live their life. They're living as a as a completely worldly person. Uh, we would have an expectation that within, you know, a faith-based school, people would conduct themselves according to the principles of that particular faith. Uh, but let's say that we've got somebody who is actually doing the complete opposite, and then we say, well, you can't actually continue to be employed here because you know this school stands for you know these particular beliefs and standards and so forth. And they're like, well, I agree with those, I just don't live them. And then they can't be fired. Is that what we're saying here? Effectively, yes. So the first thing would be an inherent requirements test. Therefore, is the inherent requirement of this job for that person to practice and live out the the lifestyle of the beliefs? and the values of that faith-based organisation. So essentially, you know, if, if I'm the Bible teacher, not the religion teacher, um, then there's a better chance that there'll be an inherent requirement that, that I not only um, verbalise that I believe, but I actually have a life that's consistent with, with those beliefs. It goes further, though, and basically says, well, if you're the math teacher, is it really an inherent requirement that my what I say I believe in and what I do and how I choose to live actually all line up and, and, and you know, the, the insights we've been giving is, well, that could be hard to defend. They basically said, look, if, if it's the gardener or the bus driver, you've basically got Buckley's. You've you, you got no hope 
in our view, of defending that it's an inherent requirement of that role for the person to not only say they believe, but actually to, to follow the practices um, that are expected by the by the faith community. And, and the argument that is used, well, we're trying to remove all discrimination um, from, from our society. And uh, I find that really challenging just as a principle because the whole idea of human rights is that no one human right should dominate another, that there should be balancing provisions in legislation that allow all human rights. Now, there's always going to be a point of intersection where one right overrules another. You know, you're never going to avoid that conflict. But it's a matter of trying to get that balance right between various competing human rights. And and often the arguments used, well, public money is going into employing your teachers, therefore you should... Um, be dictated to by the state um, on what you can and can't, what how how you balance those human right provisions and and really equal opportunity or anti discrimination based legislation is the vehicle where um, states and and you know for us the, the federal government will seek to try and balance those provisions and what really troubles us is is that the balance is actually getting out of kilter. And, and the basic human right to, to freedom of religion is the one that is on the losing side of what's being proposed here and that other human rights are being put above um, the free expression of religion. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to me that um, the, the question that sort of goes through my mind is who is it that gets to define what, you know, the whole inherent re- requirements test? Who is it that gets to, defi- to define uh, which jobs have an inherent requirement of um, actually living the faith of the organisation, um, you know, whether it be a school or whatever it might be, and are we going to have a situation where the state actually dictates to a church what, for instance, uh, is appropriate or inappropriate conduct for a maths teacher and what they can promote you know, in the classroom through their lifestyle and conduct. Are we going to have the state actually deciding for a church what the what a math teacher can and, and cannot, you know, promote through the way they live? And I guess that's the fear of where it's going, Lyle. Um, look, the, the draft wording of the bill hasn't come out yet. They're basically going, going, have undertaken over the last couple of weeks a cabinet in confidence consultation with a range of organisations. And what that basically means is everything that is said in those conversations is sealed. It will never be made public. And, um, you know, they can go out and say, we've consulted, but the, the, the findings from the consultation don't actually have to be released. And they can then go and introduce the bill to Parliament. And I guess we wait with bated breath. We're kind of expecting that the bill will come to Parliament this year. And uh, I guess, we, the, the, as always, the devil's in the detail, so to speak. And uh, we've just got to wait and see how the wording is and whether some of the concerns, some of the submissions we've made, um, they, they actually respond to those concerns, but yes, it's, it's deeply troubling the, the thought that the, the the state, the courts, are actually going to determine um, what is an appropriate level of belief and and practicing of belief takes place in a faith based school. 
And, and for me, this is just further evidence, and, and I've possibly spoken before about the shift from being a soft secular society to a hard secular society. In summary, just very, very briefly, a soft secular society is where the church and state have mutual respect for each other and where they each have their role and we, we each get on and do our own thing and, and there's mutual respect and that the principles and values of faith inform the public square to help shape um, the laws and the kind of mutually respectful um, society we have, whereas a hard secular society basically says, we don't want to hear from people of faith. You just go over in the corner and do your own thing, but you really have no right to have a voice in the public square. And so really a soft secular society is about freedom of religion, whereas a hard secular society is more about freedom from religion. And what we're seeing in a lot of these bills that are coming through is it's really seeking to push people of faith to the margins. And, and, and I find, Lyle, that we're, we're seeing this huge disconnect in society where the lawmakers are pushing a hard line of freedom from religion Yet when you look at what mums and dads are doing, the faith-based education sector is growing at a faster rate than ever. We, we have amongst the highest ratio of children in Christian education in Australia anywhere in the world. And why is that? It's a competitive marketplace. Why do mums and dads spend their hard-earned dollars sending their children to Christian schools? There must be something about them, the, the, the values and the principles that are being espoused that are meeting what parents are looking for, and, and, and I just fear that our, our lawmakers are not listening to what the mums and dads in society are saying in pushing these agendas. It's very concerning. Michael, one of the things that worries me when I look at this particular proposal is that, you know, faith-based organisations are not the only organisations that have discriminatory employment. And this is discrimination in the, in the positive sense, not in the in the negative sense. You've got, you know, things like political parties and clubs and, you know, clubs for minority cultures, whatever it might be. There's a whole bunch of these kinds of organisations around. Um, they are able to discriminate in employing um, in employment or in membership. You know, I'm, I'm a member of, you know, two local um, recreational clubs just in, in my own region and they can, they can discriminate on, uh, mm. on my membership on the basis of my personal compatibility with the organisation's ethos and values. Um, and so why is it that the legislation, as it seems, is only focused at faith-based organisations? Isn't that a form of discrimination when, you know, a political party or, you know, just my, my local car club can discriminate against me based on whether I own a classic car or not? For my membership, um, there's all kinds of different, you know, forms of of uh, you know requirements to be a part of something. Why is this? Why is this particular piece of legislation just going after faith based organisations? And isn't that a form of discrimination? Sure, and and I think you're spot on. You know, if a political party can discriminate on who they accept into their membership, they only accept people into their membership. Who, who agree um, with with their charter, so to speak, with their values, with their principles. As you say, you know, the local car club, um, you know, there's probably not too many Ford enthusiast clubs that are quite happy for their members to rock up in a HSV Holden and, and, and so on and so forth. But there certainly seems to be antagonism toward people of faith. 
and, and this is a real challenge because as a Christian, how do we respond in such a way that we don't exacerbate this perception of an us versus them mentality? Because, it's, you know, from our perspective, it's not about us versus them. It's about respectfully living out our faith in what we know and we respect as a modern pluralistic society. You know, we don't, we're not compelling everyone to believe what we believe. Sure, we think, you know, that as Christians, we, we've got a lot of really good answers to life's questions and we would love to see people accept, you know, um, the, the Bible and, and, and to, to live the way we live, but we're not trying to impose that on other people. Uh, we, we, we just want to do that. And one of the challenges with with anti-discrimination legislation is it, it creates an environment where um, the anti-discrimination framework says these are all the things that are unlawful and then it provides exemptions on which basis that you can still discriminate. And so what it creates is a very negative framework that says basically it's unlawful to discriminate against this section of people, but this group, this group and this group, you're allowed to keep discriminating. And so it looks as though we're, we're acting on a negative right and we're using it as a sword that we wield against others, whereas what we want to do as people of faith is actually have a shield that provides a positive protection that protects our right as people of faith to respectfully and reasonably live out our faith convictions uh, both in belief and in lifestyle and practice. And so it's a shield to protect our basic human right rather than, as it's often portrayed, as a sword to attack other people. We, we, we just want the freedom to be able to live out our faith. And uh, somewhere in the mix that's being misunderstood and, and I dare say in some quarters it's even being attacked and, and sought to be marginalised, that freedom to, to live. Finally, Michael, what can we and what should we be doing as Christians in response to what's happening in uh, Victoria, Western Australia, and is probably going to happen in a lot of other states in the future um, as time progresses? Look, it's not a glib response. Prayer changes things. Prayer is powerful. And, and I think sometimes we spend a lot of time wringing our hands and, you know, we appropriately need to respond. Um, but, but prayer is powerful and and God can intervene in in our society. I think when the opportunity comes, if you live in the relevant jurisdiction, uh, writing letters to your local MPs, it's it's amazing. Um, you know, MPs are very sensitive. If they think a certain decision is going to cost them votes, they'll think twice about it. Um, and, and I also think it's really important that we continue to pray for our federal government at the moment. You know, this election promise of the Morrison government to bring into play in this term a religious discrimination bill that provides at least some positive protections for freedom of religion in Australia. Uh, we, we believe that, that the third draft of that bill is going to be released this year, uh, that it's imminent, and uh, we, we just need to pray that the, the, the Morrison government has the convictions that has the ability to deliver on the convictions, the promises they made in light of the Ruddock report in 2018, that seems like a lifetime ago, but the, the, all the things that were outlined in the Ruddock Review, um, following on from the legislation of same-sex marriage, those things haven't changed. And, and there actually was a, a commitment that many of those recommendations from the Ruddock Review would be introduced into law, and uh, Australia really needs that. So, so let's pray not just for, for these state-based 
pieces of legislation, but also the positive legislation in the pipeline at a federal level. Michael Worker, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning to talk about what's happening in the religious liberty realm here in Australia. We're going to move on with the show right now. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.